Amen. Well, you can have a seat. My name is uh, Jesse, and uh, I just want to confess something. It's, it's been a while now. Uh, it seems like yesterday I was in college, but it's been like 15 years ago. Uh, I graduated uh, high school, and I went to college, and you would think that uh, having graduated college successfully, or ex- excuse me, having graduated high school successfully, that I would have been prepared for college in all aspects of college. It turns out um, I did really okay in high school. I did as good as I wanted to do in high school, I guess. Uh, but I never studied. I never, I never did anything to actually try. I made it. I get my diploma, whatever they give you. And then I go to college and I think, oh, I'm just going to be immediately ready for college. And so I had a uh, Ford Escort ZX2, which is a fancier Ford Escort than maybe you're used to. It's got two doors and a spoiler. So, you know, that's pretty hip and, and into things. Uh, and so I loaded down this Ford Escort with all of my worldly possessions, which all of my clothing fit into one garbage bag. And I had a big 32 inch TV, which at the time uh, isn't the flat screens that you hang on. You can like carry two of them, you know, the flat screens. This is a tube, 32-inch TV. It barely fit. It broke the seat. It it weighed so much, it broke the passenger seat of my Ford Escort ZX2, and I drive to Dallas. Uh, I don't have a map. This is before maps were on your phone. I didn't print a map. I just thought I would magically know how to get where I'm going, and so I drive to Dallas. Uh, It turns out uh, a Ford Escort ZX2 with a full tank of gas leaving Nederland, Texas, will be on E and crying about it in Dallas. Like I made it exactly to Dallas. I didn't stop at gas stations. I didn't know where a gas station was. And I just sort of meandered my way. Oh, I know that exit. Someone said to exit. And I made my way to this apartment complex on fumes to the place that I'm going to live. And I meet my first roommate. His name is Buster McQueen. Not a made up name. I think his parents named him Buster McQueen. He pulls up in an old beat up Ford. that's like blowing smoke. And he gets out and he has one of those bull ring nose ring things. He's like, hey, I'm Buster. You want to come and check out your house? Yeah, great. And so he's like, can I help you unpack? He's like, I've got it. And so I just grab my garbage bag and I go inside. He goes, uh, you have like towels or no, you have a bed, like you got a trailer coming. No, I'm just, I'm in college. This is, so uh, you're, you're going to be miserable for a little while. So I slept on my garbage bag for the first few nights of college because, uh, high school, uh, it prepared me for graduating high school, but high school did not prepare me for graduating college. I was so unprepared. I didn't know where I was going. Um, we got, I didn't know where a grocery store was. And so Buster's like, Hey, let me show you around. And so he's going to show me to a grocery store and Buster, he was a single guy and we're going in and there's this girl in front of us. And he's like, look at her. She's so hot. Oh yeah. She, check her out. It's like, okay, whatever. I'm, I don't, I'm just trying to figure this out. We go in, we round the corner. It turns out it was a man with a beard dressed in a dress and a, and a wig. Uh, he was really embarrassed. I thought it was hilarious, uh, but I wasn't prepared for that either. I, I didn't know. I didn't know what I was getting into. It turns out in college, you have to study. In high school, you don't have to study anything. You can pretty much get by. Your teachers, like if you cry or, you know, beg or something, they'll let you with another chance. Uh, I didn't have to study until I got to college, and then I had to learn how to study. So much of my high school experience, I thought was preparing me for college. I thought it was, I thought I was going to be ready. Um, and it turns out I wasn't ready for anything. And I had to learn the hard way that uh, you can fail college really quick if you don't know where to go, you don't know where your classes are, you don't know how to eat, and you don't know how to study. Uh, you don't make it. They don't, they don't give you a pass, even though you're paying them for the experience, which is really ironic. High school was free and I made it, uh, but then you pay for college and I really, uh, I got a lot of hard life lessons. Uh, here's, here's what uh, I think. I think a lot of our coming up in church we thought was preparing us for life, and, and we believed it. Maybe, maybe you've had experiences that you went to church faithfully, you, you were there all the way through, and then life hit, and everything went sideways, and you're just like, I was not ready for that. 
I didn't expect that. Maybe, maybe the religion I was growing up in wasn't preparing me for the real life example that we're, uh, that we're experiencing. And so what we have, and what we, we started studying last week, is this letter uh, from James to the church. And James seems to think that the religion, the faith that you practice, should be preparing you for the real life uh, examples, the real life problems, the real life situations that you find yourself in. And if, if it hasn't, uh, then maybe there's a tweak or two that we can make to our faith, to our religion, to how we practice it, to, to prepare us uh, for that. I said last week that uh, Mario Brothers was the greatest game ever made, according to those who study it. I don't know who goes to college for that, but the original Mario Brothers, the first level, is the perfect first level because everything you need to know to finish the game, to beat Bowser and to conquer everything, you learn in the first level, which buttons to press, how to jump, how to run, how to do life. And for a lot of us, the church is like the only expression of faith we have. But James says it the other way around. The church should be like the first level of Mario Brothers. The church, what we do today, this hour that we gather together, is meant to prepare us for everything else life is going to throw at us. This room right here is not the expression of our faith. The expression of our faith is how we take what we learn in here, uh, the people that we know, the lessons that God is teaching us, and we apply it to our parenting, we apply it to our workplace, we apply it to all the different problems that we have. So to get us up to date, last week James said a lot of uh, things that were, they're hard to swallow, but it's good medicine sometimes. Um, He says, count it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, not because the problems are small, but because whenever you face a problem, uh, you can count it joy because it's going to reveal to you your priorities. It's going to reveal to you what you really put your faith in. It's going to reveal to you what's really important to you. Count it the joy that whenever you face a problem, you're going to find out more about yourself and more about how your faith is equipping you. Or in some cases, lack thereof, how your faith didn't equip you for that. And so we come back to church and we learn some more. He says, if any of us lacks wisdom, We don't know where these problems are coming from. Why is it? Why is it that we run face first into this problem over and over again? Anybody have a, uh, I'll just raise my hand. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I have problems that like every six months it circles back around. I'm like, there it is again. Why in the world does that problem keep coming up? It's like, it's just like, I can almost put it on a calendar every six months. Here, here it comes. Well, James says, if you lack wisdom, ask God for wisdom. And he's in a giving mood. Like he wants to give us the wisdom to understand how we handle this. What maybe we can do different. Maybe, maybe Jesse should surround himself with better friends. I don't, I don't know. He says, if, if you are uh, low, celebrate in your exaltation. If you're high on the totem pole and you're rich, celebrate in that God is going to humble you. At the, at the end of the day, we're all on an even playing ground when it comes to how equipped we are for this world. And, and, and we should celebrate that, that some of us are being built up and some of us are being kind of knocked down a peg where we need to be. But these are things that we should celebrate in the church. And then, and then the last thing that, I, that I'll bring up that we talked about last week was, was he, he, he talks about temptation here. And he, sa- he says that we're tempted when we are lured and enticed by our own desires. And our desires, when we give way to them, they lead to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, gives way to death. James says that a lot of the problems that we face, a lot of the things that we find that are tempting, they're not, they're not from outside sources. It's, like, it's our own desires. And, and that this faith that he has, um, that we should have, should be preparing us to handle them, to, to weather it. And go on. Remember, James is the little brother of Jesus, which is just a fascinating thing. And so much, I, I just have to believe that there are nights when, when James was a child and Jesus is like in his bunk bed or whatever. And, 
and he's asking questions. He's like, okay, Jesus, like, you know, when, when, how did you create the world? Uh, like, what, what was that like? Could you imagine Jesus like, hey, hey, you're never going to see a penguin in real life, but let me show you something. And it's like, there's a penguin. Wow, in Israel, that's amazing. Like, Jesus would just explain to him, let me tell you what's at the bottom of the trench in the ocean. Um, a lot of what James will say, uh, and we'll look at some of this here, it, it sounds a lot like Jesus. It sounds like this could be Jesus' brother really saying some of these things. So we're going to continue our series called Religious, and I just want to go over our definition for religion. We'll bring that up right here. Uh, there are a thousand different ways to define religion. Uh, this, is, this is two that I think uh, James would like. He says, religion is a particular system of faith and worship. I don't know why I chose to drink right in the middle of that sentence. I thought it would be faster than that. It felt like an eternity. Uh, people have been making fun of me that I keep drinking life water. It's just the shape of the bottle. I keep filling this up in like taps and faucets and stuff. This isn't a commercial for these people. Uh, religion is a particular system of faith and worship. It's a particular system. It's a system that is designed for particular things. James says that the system that, that the Lord has designed of our faith and our worship is designed to help us weather the storm that, that life is going to throw and designed to help us worship God in, in what Jesus would say, in spirit and truth. It's designed to give us like a good understanding of what God wants from us, what God expects from us. Our faith is designed so that we are equipped to go out and treat people better. Our faith is designed so that we can go out when people treat us badly, we, we're not like knocked off our heels. It's a particular system of faith and worship. Another definition says it's a pursuit or interest to which someone ascribes supreme importance. Supreme importance. James says that when we face trials of many kinds, it's going to show us what was supremely important to us. If our bank account is supremely important to us, when we get that layoff, it hurts more than it would be if you're like, you know what, the Lord has been providing for me this whole time. That, that religion is a pursuit or interest to which someone ascribes supreme importance. So let us, together, open up James and uh, pursue this system and see how it feels and how it fits. We're going to be in James chapter 1. Uh, I'm going to start reading in, in verse 19 if you want to read along. And we'll probably spend like all day on just this one verse. Knowing this, he says, my beloved brothers. He's like, hey, listen, I've got, you're my beloved brother. Anytime, anytime someone says, hey, listen, I love you so much, but we need to talk. <laughs> like, like, you know, it's going to hit a little heavier than, than you were expecting. Knowing this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Who, who, who should be slow to speak? He says every person out there. We should be slow to speak, uh, quick to hear, uh, and slow to anger. I said that out of order, but I said it right. Quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. If, if we learned just this one verse and applied it to every conversation, every argument we find ourselves in, if we just, if we took this one verse and just put it like, okay, every time my wife uh, seems to be angry at me, I'm going to be slow to speak. <laughs> I'm going to be quick to hear. I'm going to be slow to anger. I'm, just, I'm going to slow down just a minute. If, if every time the boss comes in, it's like, listen, uh, your review was next week, but we need to handle some things right now. Okay, be, be quick to hear. Slow to speak. You might lose your job on that one. Slow to anger. When, when the church is losing, um, what's the word? Uh, uh, it, it's... 
not importance in the community. Uh, when, when the church is losing footing in the community, when the church is losing uh, its reputation in the community, the church would be wise if it would be uh, slower to speak about things, quick to listen to what these other people's experiences are, and slow to anger and correction. Th- think about, um, parents, think about your children's behaviors when they're, when they're just off the chain. Like, I-, I have a kid, he'll climb up on top of the couch, he's like, hey dad, check this out, and then just leaps. Just like, like you know, that, you know the, the girl on Titanic that she puts her arms out? That's my three-year-old flying off the top of the couch. Who knows who's going to catch him? He, he, he could, he, I don't know if he thinks he's going to take off flying, but I'm pretty sure he's this close to a hospital every time he does that. And I'm just, wow, why did you do that? Well, um, if, I'm, if I'm quick to speak, I'm going to quickly go and correct the behavior. But if I would just pause and listen, I would probably hear my three-year-old say something far wiser than his ears. It would be something like, hey, Dad, I just want you to pay attention to me for a minute. And then he flies off. <laughs> like he, just, he just leaps. Imagine if I did that right now. You would all have a heart attack if I just leapt, like just face nose first off the stage. Uh, it, when when we were uh, when I when I was working in foster care and adoption, we uh, I was tasked even before I had kids, I was tasked to teach parenting, to teach to teach people how to raise their kids. And one of the things that I was taught that that I think is was helpful, even though I, I hadn't learned it yet, um, is that every behavior a child displays is a communication of a need. Every behavior. It's really easy to do that when you have a newborn and it's four a.m. and they're crying in the bed. O- only the craziest mom in the world is like, "Come on." Give me a break. You're taking it. No, no, no. Every mom knows when the newborn is crying in the bed, that is communicating a need. The behavior is unwanted, the crying, but I'm communicating that I, I, need, I need you to feed me right now. I need you to come from me. I need you to change me. Um, and it turns out that that same psychology, it gets more complicated, but it's the same at three years old and five years old, and eight years old, and get this, at 20 years old, uh, married folks, at 30 years old, and 40 years old, that every behavior is a communication of something else. And if we would not be so quick to speak, if we would just pause and be, be slow to speak, and be quick to hear, maybe we would hear what the message is. Maybe we would know, um, know, know how to handle it. When, when uh, a husband or a wife gets home, and uh, talks about you know a future layoff, the possibility of a layoff, and the conversation gets gets heavy and you know, like oh come on, uh, there, there's there's frustration, there's fear there. Uh, a lot of times, um, that will be the beginning of an argument about a bill and do we pay Hulu this month or do we cancel it or uh, that trip that we were going to plan in six months. I'm, I don't want to cancel that trip. I don't, and the argument kind of takes a turn. But if we, would, if we would be slow to speak in that moment, husbands and wives, um, and quick to hear, what we might hear instead of a frustration about the bad news of money, what we might hear is a fear of the future. We might hear a spouse who is just kind of terrified about what the next six months holds and are we going to be okay? We pause for a minute and we just listen. We're slow to jump in there. We're slow to our anger. We're quick to hear. I've been uh, really pondering a lot how the church has responded to um, uh, the conversation of racism in our community and in our nation um, and it's really hard. I'll tell you, uh, if, if I can just be super transparent, as, as, as a white guy, to say, let's talk about racism in the church, it feels like virtue signaling. It feels like I just want to talk about this so that everybody will know, like, I'm, I'm really, uh, you know, educated and I know things. And so, like, I'm, I've been self-conscious about it. But, but there, there, is, there is a conversation to be had right there. And more often than not, the church, 
uh, those of us who are in the church are so quick to say something that we miss the message. We didn't hear our brothers who have had a different experience or sisters of a different color who had a different experience at a different moment. We didn't hear them. And we were so quick to give them what we think and what we feel that we didn't hear them. And, and then we're quick to anger. A few uh, months ago, I was at Walmart, uh, this Walmart right here, and I uh, had to buy something. Who knows what it was? Probably life water, uh, as it is. And uh, they, they, every now and then there's a greeter at the door, and it doesn't always happen this way. The greeter sometimes just waves you through. You know what I'm talking about? Like they're there and you have the receipt ready, but they don't care about it. They just wave you through. Uh, this day, that guy was on it. Like I don't know if he had his Wheaties that day. He wanted to check receipts. And so there's like a line of people checking receipts at Walmart. And uh, there's you know six people in front of me. Two people in front of me is a black family. The, the couple or the group in front of me was a, a Hispanic mom and her kids. I'm the, a solo white guy. I'm by myself. And then behind me is a black couple. Okay, you follow all the different races. There's a whole rainbow like going out the door right here. And uh, the two in front of me, the, the, the black family, uh, which he's been checking receipts. He checked that receipt. He gets to that, checks that receipt. He checks it. Okay, now the, the Hispanic uh, uh, mom with her kids, I need to see your receipt, ma'am. Okay, all right, good. And I get there and I have my receipt in my hand. He goes, oh, no, you're fine. And he, he waves me through. And then the black couple behind me is like, ah, ah, and he's like, I need to see your receipt. And he checks it. Did he have motivation? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he heard something on the loudspeaker that he's looking for someone who did steal something and he's just waiting for them to come through. I don't know what his thing was, but I turned around and I looked at the black couple and he looked at me. He's like, why? I don't know. What, what am I supposed to do? I can't apologize for everybody's behavior, but I'll tell you this. This is what I took away from that is that whenever my black brother says that my experience has been a little different, I'm in Walmart and I saw that his experience behind me was different than mine. Why did he wave me through? I don't know. Why did he not wave him through? I don't know. But, but we need to be quick to hear our brothers and sisters when they tell a story, when they say that things are different. Uh, I'll tell you some interesting history about uh, racism in America. I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm wanting to be able to have a, a, a good conversation with this. And if, if anybody, uh, I'll just say this, I want to I sit down and have coffee with people who know things <laughs> more than I know, uh, because I, I want to learn. I want to I I feel, I feel, like, I feel like we should address this. Um, Jonathan Edwards was a Puritan pastor who preached the gospel faithfully. He's one of the like, smartest men that America has ever produced. Um, and he preached about grace, and he preached about forgiveness, and he preached about freedom, and yet he owned slaves. Um, when missionaries uh, came from Europe, and, and they wanted to evangelize the American colonies, the, the, the slaveholders would stop them and say, watch out on the freedom stuff. We don't want you to teach that. And the missionaries compromised their message and said, well, the freedom is for like eternity. And they said, they said to the slaves, they would give a different gospel than they would give to, to white folks. Uh, George Whitfield, who was a, a famous pastor, uh, he was anti-slavery. This is fascinating to me, anti-slavery. And he, uh, he spoke publicly against it. And one day he opens an orphanage in Georgia, um, one, of, one of an early ones in America in the 1700s. And, and in this orphanage, uh, he's trying to rescue children. He's trying to help families come back together. Uh, and it starts to go bankrupt. And he's looking around like, how do I, how do I uh, keep this orphanage afloat? And someone says, well, you know, you have a lot of land. Have you considered hiring, you know, hiring, that's not the right word, uh, getting some slaves and working the land? He's like, yeah, that's a great idea. I can do that. And so someone gifted George Whitfield 
one slave. He went to the market wherever you buy slaves in the 1700s and bought six more. The man who was against slavery saw that he can keep his orphanage afloat through this economy, and, and he turned gears. And when, when we have, I'm sorry if this is making everybody uncomfortable, when we have our black brothers and sisters who say, you know what, the church has been a little different for us coming up. We should listen. We should be quick to hear. Okay, let's get out of the 1700s. In the 1900s, uh, Billy Graham, America's pastor, crusades everywhere. He did amazing, great things. He, his, one of his contemporaries was Martin Luther King Jr. And he was friends, more or less, with Martin Luther King Jr. And Martin Luther King Jr. and others in the civil rights movement asked Billy Graham, would you help us with this movement? And, and he kind of took a back seat and he said, that's more of a political thing and I don't want to compromise the message. And I get that. I feel that pressure. I don't, I don't want to get mixed up in Democrats versus Republicans. I don't want to get mixed up in too many things like that if it compromises the gospel. Yet this, in Billy Graham's last book, uh, maybe in our last interview, he publicly regretted not speaking out on the civil rights movement. He says, I missed an opportunity. We as a church should have been more on the front end of this because, because freedom was freedom. And Jesus gives real freedom. The church should be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. A lot of uh, my work as a social worker, I'd work with uh, folks in poverty. Uh, poverty is a weird, weird business. I, I don't know if you know people in deep poverty. It seems like the problem is that there's a lack of money. I mean, that's what we think of when we think of poverty. Uh, it's actually more than that. Uh, because if, if that were the only problem, then all I need to do is to get some green paper out of my wallet and just throw it at people, and I fix them, right? Like, if poverty was the real problem, pff, that should fix it, yet it doesn't. We went to uh, Mission... Uh, it was either Mission Arlington or Mission Tyler, and they had this uh, explanation. It was like a 30-minute class that they'd make you go to before you could serve there about poverty. It was fascinating to me. And she, says, she said a lot of people, they see people in poverty, and they see the problems that they have because of their poverty, and they run in to try to fix it. I'm going to fix the problem. I mean, you, know, you got a problem with uh, your bills? Here you go. I'll pay your light bill. I'll pay your rent. Uh, think of how, how often our missionaries, like we send people across the country to go build a well. Like you have a problem with a well, we're going to go fix it. And here's what she said. She said, when we do that, when we look at poverty as a problem that needs fixing, a money issue or a, a thing, what we're taking away from them is the dignity that is inherent in someone meeting their own needs and serving. All, all of these people uh, deserve dignity. I think of uh, our community has a problem with addictions. Uh, you have, you have uh, drug addiction, alcoholism. Uh, pills are a big problem uh, in our community. Families are just getting destroyed uh, by meth. My gosh. And we think it's so easy. I mean, it's just a behavior problem, right? You choose that addiction. But if you, if you sit and listen to a battered wife whose entire existence is fear, is, whose entire existence of surviving is, is predicated on the, the man who is abusing her, uh, paying the bills and providing the shelter, you have a different understanding, a different empathy with people. If, if, if I could just uh, not, not beat this horse you know, completely dead, <laughs> when, when James says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger, I think what we would find as a church and as individuals, if we would just slow down and listen to people's stories, we would, we would know more about how the world really is. 
and we would have more empathy for people. And in return for us growing in our empathy, they would in turn grow in dignity because we see them for who they are, not just a problem that needs fixing, not just a, 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 a political thing or a money hole that we just throw. Like, real people really need the gospel. And if we're slow uh, to speak and quick to hear, uh, we would be more uh, uh, able to, to do that. Verse 21 says, Therefore, because of this, because we're going to be uh, slow to speak, we're going to be quick to hear, and we're going to be very slow to anger, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. James says, you, the church, the implanted word, you know what God is asking for you. The thing that is getting in the way, church, is that we've been quick to anger. Therefore, if we slow down our anger, we choose. I'm not going to get mad about everything. Every time uh, Fox News tells me I should be mad about something, every time MSNBC says I should be mad at that person, I'm going to get really mad. Uh, We're very easily manipulated when we're easily angered. Uh, But if we're slow to anger, then we can start to do what he says right here. We can start to put away filthiness and rampant wickedness, and we receive with meekness the implanted word. We receive what we know God is already teaching us, and we receive it well, and we become those who are meek, those who are, who are gentle. I'm getting I'm all like preachy today. I'm not usually like this. I apologize if that's really uncomfortable. Verse 22 says, But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now, uh, in the, last week we looked at something that, that James believes, um, that we have an incredible ability to lie to ourselves, to the point that we've convinced ourselves of the lie that we created in ourselves. That's how temptation lures us and entices us to sin and therefore later to death. And he, it, what he says right here, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. When, when, we, when we come to church, or we open our Bible, and we read God's word, and we're like, man, I really do need to work on that. And then we close it, and then we walk away, and we've not done anything with the thing that we were just taught, or the thing that we were just like struggling with, or the thing that we like find hope in. We do nothing with it. What James says is that we're deceiving ourselves. We keep filling up our brain with knowledge, and we don't do anything with it. What is a person like who uh, is a hearer only but not a doer? He says, verse 23, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently, I like that word, intently, he's just staring, looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. He'll be blessed not in his hearing, not in his thinking, not in his wishing. He'll be blessed in his doing. A few years ago, um, I, I, uh, it was before I was, I was pastoring, but I was filling in up here, and uh, I'd finished a message in front of all of you beautiful people, and uh, the building cleared out and you know, kind of turning lights off. There's just a few people left, and walking through the hall, I'm saying bye to a few people, saying bye to Jason and Amber and Micah. And, but, but Jason is the last one. Jason Harris, our, our worship pastor, uh, he's in the hall, and we had this long conversation, like five minutes. It was, I don't know what we talked about, but a five-minute conversation. And I'm the last one to walk out the door. I walk out, I get in my truck, and I look in the mirror, and I have a booger in my nose. And I thought, man, like, who, which one of you guys isn't a good enough friend to tell me that I had something gross happening on my face? I talked to all of y'all. I talked to people in the hallway. I talked to people, coworkers. Nobody said anything. And then I looked in the mirror. I looked intently in the mirror. I was like, golly, I'm disgusting. And I took care of it. 
I fixed it. Now, up until me looking in the mirror, it was all of y'all's fault. No, somebody should have said something to me. Well, imagine, imagine I looked in the mirror. I was like, golly, I need to do something about that. Oh, well. <laughs> I just drove away. I go to Walmart. I go visit my grandma. Like, I'm just like going place to place. And the whole time the bat is in the cave and I do nothing about it. And the people are like, hey, man, you ought to do something. But I was like, yeah, I know, you're right. I really should. I should, I should work on that. And then I just drive away. I spend the whole day. If I don't do anything about it, it will be there forever. And that's disgusting and hilarious. And James says, that's exactly what it's like. When we go to church and we hear God's word, and it's like looking in the mirror and God tells us who we are and we see what we're like. And we're like, yes, you're right. Yes, that's encouraging. Or yes, that's challenging. Or yes, I need to work on that. Yes, I should be slower to anger. My gosh, I should be slower to anger. Well, that was a good church, and you close it, and then we leave, and we, we're not doers. And James says we need to be careful about that, because when we do that, we deceive ourselves into thinking we're better than we are. We deceive ourselves into thinking that, like, we've worked on ourselves. We've learned something about what God expects of us. We deceive ourselves when we look in the mirror and then walk away and forget what we look like. And then in verse 26, he says, If anyone thinks he is religious... And for, for James, that's such a good word. We, we see that as a negative word. But for James, if, if your religion, if your pursuit is a good and holy and righteous thing, then religion is good. Religiousness is good. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Oh, you know, I just have a quick mouth. My grandma, uh, she, she liked to talk, and she would say things like this. She would say, well, Jesse, you know, I have a long tongue, which I don't know where that metaphor comes from, but it's a good, it's a good, I have a, a, a quick tongue. I, people say things, sometimes they'll say, uh, you know, so I just, I, I, sometimes I just can't control my mouth. I can't, I can't, I can't, you know, it just gets the best of me. Uh, sometimes, sometimes I get so mad when that person cuts me out, I just can't stop it. James says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, you don't work on your tongue. A bridle is, is not like an inherent like, skill that the horse has. You put a bridle on a horse, you steer it around. You tell the horse where to go. The horse isn't born with a bridle. The horse has a bridle placed in there. The, the horse rider uh, doesn't inherently know how to steer a horse until they get on there and start practicing and trying. And what James is saying is like, if, if this person doesn't bridle their tongue, if this person isn't taking steps to control their mouth and control the, the wickedness that comes out or the, the anger or controls the, the, just the, the quick tongue, we're not talking about using curse words. We're talking about using our words to hurt people. If this person does nothing to control their tongue and deceives their heart into thinking they're pretty good people, like, you know what, they shouldn't have said that to me either. And so I'm just going to say what I want. James says you're, you're deceiving yourselves and your religion, whatever you're your intent pursuit in life is, it's not working for you. Maybe if, if that religion is worthless, maybe the religion that James is offering, the religion that puts a faith in Jesus to be transformed by him, a faith that says, I'm going to be a doer of the word. Whenever I hear that God has, has called me to something, or I hear that God's standard is different than the way I've been living, I, I'm going to be a doer of that. And I'm, going to be, I'm going to start bridling. That's what I'm going to start doing. I'm going to start working at it. And, and I'm going to put this, this horse in check. Uh, so I've killed a horse today, and I've put a horse in check. A lot of horse metaphors this morning. Religion that is pure, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from this world. To visit orphans and widows. A lot of, uh, there's an obvious overlap to foster care there, there. Um, and certainly, uh, 
serving our, our widows and our widowers is got to be vitally important. I wonder sometimes why James chooses these two categories, the orphans and, and the widows. I think it's this. I think, I think it's because if the church doesn't look out for some people, for example, orphans and widows, but others too, then there's nobody left. There's nobody else like looking out for the widow's best interest. There's no parent there to defend the orphan's needs and to to help them, like, I mean that in a legal sense. I mean that in a, like, let me teach you how to be a man sense. And let me, let me show you what it's like to be a woman of God sense. There, there's nobody for the orphan who's there unless the church, unless someone says, I choose to be there. To visit them in their affliction says, I don't just know of the problem and throw money at it. To visit them means that we get up and we do something. <laughs> we, we get up and we serve people who are alienated, people who are far from God, people who are maybe different than us, maybe have a different experience than us. We visit them, and when they tell us their experience, we're slow to speak our experience, and we're quick to hear their experience. And if something in their experience challenges us, then we're slow to anger in response. James has this whole formula for how we can be better humans in this world. And that's to show up when people are in their affliction and just sit and listen and hear what they're going through. Pure religion, not useless religion. Remember, if you don't bridle your tongue, that's useless. But the religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the one that God is, is recommending to us here, is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from this world. That when we, when we look around and we look at the problems of this world, we're very careful not to let it stain us, not to let it flavor us. We, I'll be honest with you. Um, the church should not sound like a, uh, a news broadcast. The church should not sound like a political commentator. The church should not sound like, um, uh, what, what are we supposed to be angry about today? I don't, I don't know. Like, I've lost track. Uh, like, last week it was, it was this thing, how people were treating each other in Seattle. I think this week we're supposed to be mad at, like, the heat wave in Texas. I don't know. But, but the, the whole world is telling us what we should be mad at. And every time we start, oh, yeah, I'm going to be mad at that, we stain ourselves a little bit. Every time that we're lured away by our own uh, desires, lured and tempted by our own desires, we stain ourselves a little bit. Every time we respond in anger instead of being quick to hear, we stain ourselves a little bit. And the religion that James is suggesting is one that would keep us less stained and would send us to visit people in their affliction and just listen and hear and serve, maybe pray with, maybe, maybe hope with, maybe hear their experience and say, you know what? I had no idea that's what that was like. I'm so sorry. I, I, what, what can we do? I'm going to quick uh, reading James. We'll we'll pick up in chapter 2 next time. For us today, somewhere along the way in reading God's word, um, we should be encouraged and or challenged. Probably a little bit of both, if I had to be honest with you. And if we're we're like, man, that was awesome. I love that. And we close our books and we leave. James has already warned us what's going to happen. We're going to deceive ourselves into thinking we applied something that we didn't. We should walk out of this room, all of us, myself included, should walk out of this room with something like, I'm going to start working on that. I'm going to start doing that thing. I'm not going to do that because it's going to lead to salvation, because he's already talking to Christians. He's already talking to saved people. We go do these things not to make God like us more, 
We, we watch our mouths not to make God like us more. We're quick to listen not to make God like us more. We do that because that's the religion that prepares us for a world that's going to go sideways. You know what's really funny is that if you start showing up in people's lives during their affliction, um, it's only a matter of time before affliction hits you. And you've showed up in a lot of people's lives. You've invested in a lot. You're going to have people show up in your life, and they're going to be there for you as well. What James wants to teach us isn't how to be saved. That's a different conversation. What James wants to teach us is how saved people should act. And our religion, our faith, should look like something. And it should be refreshing. It should be a taste of fresh water to a world that is really ticked off at everything right now. And is really fearful of everything. And is really quick to talk about anything and everything. Um, our religion... Maybe a little bit quieter sometimes. Maybe choosing the right moment to speak up. Maybe, maybe not reacting in anger. But certainly it is getting out and doing the things that we hear God teaching us to do. So may we, um, may you, may, may I uh, choose to be challenged by God. And choose to believe that I'm not perfect and I'm not attained to that yet. And choose to trust that God's way the way that James is teaching us is a way that's going to lead to more peace. And it's going to be a religion that is useful both to me and to those in affliction around me because uh, I don't want to be useless. Uh, I know that you don't either. Let me pray. And after I pray, you will be uh, dismissed. There won't be a cue uh, today. Father, uh, Lord, uh, first, I thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, uh, you, you have... You, you have not pulled any punches uh, here in James. And so, uh, Lord, I, I, pray for, uh, I pray for forgiveness uh, where I've been quick to anger. Uh, I pray, Father, that you would teach me your ways better. I pray, Lord, that as, as we uh, collectively, as, as we as a church apply this, Father, that we would uh, we'd be seen as a group of people that are so quick to listen, so quick to serve, so quick to join people in their affliction, Father, that we would be angry about the things that make you angry and not be manipulated by a culture that is so quick to cause us anger. Father, I pray that we would take your word and apply it and be doers of your word. And I pray, Father, that you would protect us from our deceitfulness. You would protect us from our own ability to lie to ourselves. Um, Father, you just show us some truth. You show us, show us the hope uh, inherent in that truth. Father, we trust you with these things, um, and we thank you that, that you, you have not left us to flounder in a broken world, but Father, you, you are equipping us. So by your spirit and by your truth, uh, I pray, Lord, that, that we would be better equipped uh, for a world that is uh, very much hurting. Lord, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.